Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 13. We're going to read the first 21 verses and then just one verse out of chapter 23. But Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 21. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page, or starting on page 872. Beloved children of God, this is your Father's word to you this morning. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? than all the other Galileans, because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you also will likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you also will likewise perish." And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because of Jesus, had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. And he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made their nest in its branches. And he said again, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And now I'm just going to read one verse out of chapter 23. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. 
the sense of the reading of God's Word. Let us ask His blessing on our time in it this morning. Our gracious God, You who dwell within the pages of Your Word, we long to know You. We long to see You revealed within Your Scriptures. So open to us the beauty of Your Word. Open our eyes and our hearts to behold the King of glory and give us faith to receive all that we see. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. Uh, Something that great storytellers aren't afraid to do is to leave a story unfinished. See, some storytellers feel the need to fill in every blank, uh, tell you exactly what happened, who did what, how everything ends. They, they can't leave anything unanswered. But the masters, <laughs> they're willing to leave questions unanswered. Stories unfinished. And the goal is to force you to wrestle, to imagine, and to even step inside the story and ask not, what did he do, but what would I do? The goal of an unfinished story is to drive you to ask important questions, uh, to surrender that safe distance that we like to have with stories and to be drawn in and forced to think. And Jesus is truly a master. In verses 6 through 9 in our passage, we have a parable, which is a story with a point. But this parable, while it has a point, has no end, and it has no conclusion. We're left with a vine dresser who, who gains permission to spend a year trying to coax fruit out of this uh, fruitless fig tree. But we don't know how that year ends. Was the tree spared? Uh, was, was that manure able to bring life? Did, did fruit burst forth? Or was it a wasted year? Did that barrenness continue? Was that tree cut down and cast into the fire? Jesus leaves that question unanswered because he invites you into the parable. He wants you to answer the question of whether or not that tree ever produced fruit because you are the tree. But in order to see that, we we need to see what's going on around this parable in verses 6 through 9. How the passage opens with the questions about these major tragedies and the assumptions that not only Jesus' hearers that day tend to bring, but that we tend to bring when we hear about major tragedies or suffering or struggles. We need to understand what's going on with this healing of this, this woman on the Sabbath and the ease with which we can use pseudo-religious reasoning to serve ourselves and to hurt others. Really, what it comes down to it, what we need to understand is what God's kingdom looks like 
and how it works, which is what the story about the tree and at the end of our passage is about. And so if we can look at those sections, the, the tragedies, the, the healing on the Sabbath, and the story about the kingdom, if we understand those parts, we'll start to really understand what's going on in this parable of the barren fig tree. So that's our goal this morning. And as we do that, my hope is really to drive home one simple point, and it's this. God's kingdom is not visible as a kingdom or mighty manifestations or things like that. God's kingdom is visible in the fruit it bears in the lives of his people as they love and serve others. That's where we see God's kingdom. In acts of love and service by his people for others. That's what I hope to show you as we uh, dig into this rich portion of scripture. Uh, it, It opens with this verse that's a little bit puzzling, verse 1. We're simply told there were some who were present uh, who told him about the Galileans whose blood, Pilate, that's Pontius Pilate, had mingled with their sacrifices. There were some people who were trying to worship and they were slaughtered as they did so. We don't know why they brought it up. Maybe they simply thought he hadn't heard about it yet. Did you hear what happened in Galilee? Or, or, or maybe they were trying to stir him up against Pontius Pilate and, and, and get a rebellion raised up. Or maybe they were just simply looking for common ground. Isn't it terrible what happened in Galilee? But Jesus knows our hearts. and what's in them when tragedy strikes. When something bad happens to us, we are tempted to ask, what did I do wrong? Why is God mad at me? We tend to see good and bad in our lives in terms of divine reward and punishment. And so hard times are seen as as God's displeasure, and good times are seen as, as God's approval. And we take that, and what happens when we take that way of thinking and we see tragedy in someone else's life? We take that same standard and we apply it, don't we? What must they have done to bring that suffering into their life? I might not be perfect, but I must be better better than that person. Look what they're going through. Countries do this, right? It's easy for first world countries to assume that God loves them more, that they, that they are somehow better than third world countries. Churches do this. A, a church that's big and has large numbers and a huge budget can easily assume that God is pleased with them and little churches who are struggling just to make ends meet are tempted to ask why. Is God upset with us? Are they doing something wrong? And we do it individually. And so Jesus goes straight to the heart, doesn't he? He just says, uh, do you think that those who suffered this evil were any worse than you? Or what about those who were killed when that tower in Jerusalem collapsed? And like that, he, he pulls back the curtain of their hearts their temptation to to judge those who are suffering and to justify themselves. And we all know what it's like to do this. 
There's an old expression. A wise man learns from his mistakes. A wiser man learns from the mistakes of others. Jesus seems to, to be responding with a variation of that. It's something like this. Well, if suffering is meant to make a person wise, a wiser person would learn to turn from his sins when he sees other people suffering. Twice he tells his hearers, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. His point is clear. We are all sinners in need of forgiveness. The fact that someone, uh, that some suffer is not proof that they are greater sinners. The relative comfort that others experience is not proof that they have no sin to confess. Everyone has sinned against God. Everyone needs grace and forgiveness. In other words, repentance is your only hope regardless of your circumstances. And as we come to verse 10, we find Jesus once again teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And there's a woman there who's disabled, hunched over, unable to stand up straight. And she's been like that for 18 years. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and told her that he was willing to free her from her disability. And that's interesting language. You notice he doesn't say heal, but set her free. And then he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was healed and able to stand up straight for the first time in almost two decades. Now, he could have healed her without touching her. He's done this other times. But he touches her because touching in the Bible is significant. Touching comes with the idea of transfer. This is why the Israelites were were told not to touch anyone or anything that was unclean because that uncleanness would be transferred to them. Uh, On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, uh, the, the, the high priest would lay his hand on the head of the scapegoat and send it into the wilderness, and the image was the transfer of Israel's sin to be sent away. As Jesus lays his hands on this woman, the image is that of transfer. He's taking her infirmities, her bondage, and he's giving her his health, his freedom. Healing by touch suggests that healing comes at a cost. That in order to free her, he will have to be bound and suffer. And of course he will. Like those Galileans, he too will suffer under Pontius Pilate. And his blood will be poured out as a sacrifice. While the woman rejoiced, while she praised God, the religious leaders were incensed 
that Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. When they look at the healing, they don't see compassion. They, they don't see healing. They don't, they don't see sacrifice, something beautiful. No, what they see is, is only scandal. In their minds, what Jesus has done is a total disregard for the law of God. They see it as a rejection of God as their king, as a rejection of God's kingdom itself. Specifically, they're thinking of the fourth commandment, which in God's providence was our reading of the law this morning, the Sabbath. Because for them, the Sabbath is all about rules and restrictions. What is forbidden? Their focus when it comes to the Sabbath is on what not to do. that sort of mentality that leads you to the idea, if I can just do as little as possible, I'll be safe. But they think that because they have not paid attention. The Sabbath is about freeing from bondage. It's that one day a week when you're freed from all your responsibilities. It's that one day a week when servants are freed from their labor. At some level, the religious leaders got this because they untied, they freed their livestock on the Sabbath so that they could go and get water. But here's Jesus freeing a woman, a a Jewish daughter of Abraham, from 18 years of debilitation. And what's their response? Joy? No. Delight? No. Indignation. And what's the difference between this woman and their livestock? What difference could possibly justify such a different response from these people? Well, it's not her worth. She's a million times more valuable than livestock. She's a... a, a, sister of the Jewish people. She's a child and an heir of Father Abraham. So why do they care for their livestock and not her? Because it's their livestock. And if their livestock die of thirst, these leaders would suffer. If this woman continues to suffer, that doesn't affect them. She's like one of those Galileans that suffered under Pontius Pilate or one of those 18 who were crushed under that tower in Jerusalem. These religious leaders probably took private comfort in the suffering of others as as they think that's proof that God is angry at them. God must be angry at this woman if she's hunched over in, in agonizing pain. And we're not, so he must be pleased with us. And so her presence and her suffering was a secret, hidden joy for them. That's how they think. And so they assume that it must be how God thinks. If they operate this way, God must operate this way. This is how the kingdoms of men function. Isn't that how the kingdom of heaven functions? And that's what Jesus addresses in the last few verses. 
verses 17 through 21. Those leaders who had challenged him were were filled with shame. What's shame? Why and when do we feel shame? Shame is is that deep sense that that what you have done is wrong, that, that you are out of sync with what and who is right. And as Jesus points out their hypocrisy, their blatant hypocrisy, that they treat their livestock better than their sister, he tears away the facade of religion. And he shows that they are not kind, but they are selfish. Not interested in freeing those in bondage, but content to leave them there, that they will only lift a finger when something is in it for them. And anyone who has read the scriptures know that that's the opposite of who God is. But for those who are still missing it, Jesus goes on to explain how God's kingdom works. And he says there's essentially two key characteristics. And the first is that God's kingdom starts small, but it grows large, and as it does, it blesses those who come in contact with it. That's uh, why he compares it to this great tree that starts as a tiny seed. That seed eventually provides shade and safety for so many birds. God's kingdom is about blessing others, not yourself. Second, it starts out hidden and unnoticed, but eventually when it has grown, it becomes unmistakable. He likens it to, to leaven and bread that causes it to grow. It's an intentional echo of, at the beginning of chapter 12 when he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees. Like their evil deeds will eventually be, be revealed. They won't be able to hide forever. And he says the kingdom of God is the same way. It can't be hidden forever. It will be revealed. And the point is that God's kingdom is made visible from the, by the fruit it produces in God's people. Eventually, all hearts are revealed through the fruit they produce whether for good or for evil. Nothing is hidden forever. Hypocrites are shown for what they are through constantly serving themselves by having a different set of rules for themselves than they have for others. But God's children are revealed to be his through sacrificial love for others. By serving others. God's kingdom isn't about or visible through great political campaigns or or powerful leaders, military might, or even social power. God's kingdom is visible through a million tiny acts of love and sacrifice. We see it. And a mother who sacrifices her ambition to serve her children. We we see it in a husband who, who works hard to care for his family. We we see it in in saying no to something you want in order that you might bless another. We, We see God's kingdom in defending the rights of others above the rights of of yourself. 
We see God's kingdom in advocating for those who can't advocate for themselves. We see God's kingdom through things as simple as doing the dishes when you are dead dog tired. But you want to serve others so that they can rest. In other words, the kingdom of God is made manifest, made visible in serving others above yourself. That is the fruit of a heart that belongs to God. And that brings us right back to the parable of of the barren fig tree planted in a vineyard. Both of those images, the the vineyard and the fig tree, are images the Bible uses uh, for God's people. And the parable is about whether or not his people are going to bear fruit or not. The vineyard owner is God. He will come in due course and inspect the vineyard and the trees and see if they are producing fruit. That is, after all, what vineyards and fruit trees are for. producing fruit. So after three years, the vineyard owner comes and he inspects. He looks for fruit. He finds none. Not a single fig has been produced by this tree. And so he tells the vine dresser that this tree is wasting space. It's time to cut it down. What good is a fig tree that produces no figs? But the vine dresser asks for one more year. He says, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. It's interesting that he explicitly says manure. (laughs) It's not, give me a year to tend it. The opportunity is too rich. Because what is it that causes a tree to grow and bear fruit? It's not something we desire naturally. But it's important. It's manure. Isn't that what Jesus has been pointing out? That those who endure life's Manure are the ones who repent and seek God. The woman with 18 years of debilitating manure struggles. What was her response when she saw Jesus? She knew who he was and she ran to him and praised him. But those who enjoyed life's comfort spurned him and judged him. Beloved, when when God allows hardship into your life, he's fertilizing you so that you might produce fruit. So that you might be humbled and that you might learn to love and serve others. Because what happens if you don't? 
That's the second significant thing about what the vine dresser says. He doesn't ask the vineyard owner to disregard fruit altogether. No, he simply asks for more time to bring it about. The clock's ticking. We saw that last week in our passage. The reprieve is not forever. And this is a theme that has been coming up repeatedly, and it will. That God's patience is, is astounding, but it's not forever. Don't wait forever before you deal with God. He is patient with his justice, but his patience will run out. The words of the vine dresser will show up one more time in Luke's gospel. That those words, sir, let it be, let it alone. On the cross, Suffering under Pontius Pilate, Jesus would cry out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But here's the thing. Those words translated, Father, forgive them, in the Greek are the identical words to let it be that the vine dresser says in John 13, or Luke 13. On the cross, Jesus is asking his father for a little more time to coax life out of fruitless trees. So we end where we began. Why doesn't Jesus finish the parable? And the answer is simple. He's finishing it one life at a time, yours and mine. When you see life's manure whether it's in your life or in the lives of those around you. Your response should be humble repentance seeking the Lord's grace. Because when you do, fruit can't help but come. And by fruit, I just mean obedience to the Lord, things that please the Lord, what you were created to be and do. And so could there be any more appropriate place to end this morning than a table centers around the fruit of the vine meant to remind us of our Lord on the cross crying out, Father, let it be for now. As we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded of Jesus who did not love us from a distance but but came and he touched the untouchables. He took on flesh and blood that he might become one of us and might take our infirmities upon himself that he might give us life in exchange. He died on the cross and as he did, he prayed for us and he pours into us and he he helps us so that we might bear fruit. The Lord's Supper is meant to remind you of how Jesus has loved you. Like he loved that woman in the synagogue. Daughter, come here. Let me heal you. Let me set you free. And then he calls you to go out and to love others with that same kind of love. That's what God's kingdom looks like. That's where it's made visible. That's when we see it. Every time... You show love to another in Jesus' name.
And please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us time, that you are slow to anger, that you abound in steadfast love and mercy, and that you forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. We thank you that Jesus was willing to touch us, to heal us, to stand in our place and suffer under Pontius Pilate. Help us to grow in him, to bear fruit, and to be a blessing to others. Teach us to rejoice more in the blessings of others than our own. Father, make us more like Jesus, we pray. Amen.